I'm Dan Bullard from Spice Radio Huntsville, and tonight we're going to play an interview we recently recorded with musician and audio engineer Charles Snotty, or as most people in the community know him as, Toot. Toot has a career that spans the last 60 years of music and is known in Huntsville for being one of the first independent studio operators in the area. We talk with him about his career in music, and he shares some of his knowledge on acoustics and tips to make a home recording setup sound like the pros. Toot, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, you've been involved in music and more importantly uh kind of the science that goes with music the acoustic engineering the sound designs uh, audio engineering you've been doing that kind of work for years and years before they even really had a name for it right i have been i've been uh, fooling with this stuff for about 50 years so how did you how did you get your start in music to begin with well the start in music uh, uh i learned to play guitar because i have a cousin that uh was actually a uh, uh he's kind of a semi-background famous uh, uh, piano player, Spooner Oldham. He's actually in the uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. I used to go to family reunions, and everybody had Spooner play piano every every time we had a family reunion. And and uh, so I had bought a little acoustic, a little silver tone acoustic guitar, terrible sounding guitar, but I, I didn't know it. And uh, <clears throat> Spooner showed me some chords and how to how to play rhythm along with his piano playing. And so every time we'd have another family reunion, I'd make Spooner get with me and show me some new tricks and what have you. So that's what got me interested in it. And then there from there, I went and started playing with the first little band at, uh, from in high school called the Tempests. And then from there on to another rock and roll band, we played a lot of college circuits and everything. And that's that's what got me but spooner's what got me into all of that mess and uh from there uh i can remember when we uh our our band was making was playing college circuits we were making something like 300 bucks a, a gig which wasn't in those days not bad money not, well, not I mean, bad money. some bands still make that kind of money today i can <laughs> I, can, I can remember working uh, at a music store and working all day and making uh, like twelve dollars for the day, you know, and you could play a you could play a gig on the weekend and make thirty bucks for four hours. So you know, you went that way it wasn't too bad. Uh, and so, uh, in order for us to try to make a little bit more money for our gigs, we decided to go to a uh, recording studio in Birmingham and cut a demo tape, just singing, playing cover songs. And uh, there was a studio called Boutwell Recording Studios. And uh, I went into that studio and we did, uh, we did the soundtracks, did some overdubs, and went back into the control room and listened to playback and watch him mix. And it was, it was like cocaine. I was hooked. Yeah. <laughs> hearing yourself, hearing yourself, because that's, people like to forget now or people have never had that experience that recording something I, I guess this would have been like what mid to late 60s when you did your recording oh, the that was the recording was done in um 66 yeah so and that was a big deal at the time because most most bands a lot of bands couldn't afford to get into a studio and that was really the only way you could do it at that time yeah that's the only way you could do it and what our our goal was to take our our band from a three hundred dollar band to a six hundred dollar band, <laughs> and you know what? It worked. <laughs> so what uh, because was... you had a recording, 
people, and it wasn't even, it was just tape recording. It wasn't a record. It was just, you know, we'd, we'd hand off copies of the tape to these fraternities and stuff. And because you had a recording, you know, we immediately doubled our pay. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you were handing out reels of tape. Yes. Goodness. <laughs> what was, what was the recording process like for y'all at that time? It was, it was very much like today. We played all at the same time. We were only recording onto a four track machine. So, it wasn't like we could go back and remix and do do uh, punch ins and stuff with the lead vocalist singing. But then uh, then we go back and we do uh, background vocals. And then we had uh, we had two more tracks left. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do some we'll do some uh, guitar overdubs. Okay. Oh, well, I sounded terrible on that. But anyway, and then we did a. a, a uh, we didn't have a cowbell, but we wanted a cowbell on the recording, so we found a metal ashtray, and the drummer, <laughs> the drummer, <laughs> played a metal ashtray for a cowbell. And anyway, it uh, it accomplished our goal. It went from a three hundred dollar band to a six hundred dollar band yeah, overnight. <laughs> overnight, and that was a ten piece band, by the way. <laughs> oh wow! So you said when you, your first studio experience, you you were hooked, you know? Oh yeah, with the whole process. What I, what about it appealed to you at the time? I, I, well, I'm a I'm a I'm a gadget freak. When I was a kid, I would take things apart to see how they work, and well, and try to put it back together. Sometimes I succeeded, sometimes I didn't. The reason I bring that up is because I was watching the mechanics of what uh, Boutwell was doing and recording us and mixing us and and editing and you know. When we talk, we're talking about editing on a computer these days. You place a cursor and hit your zero cross point and cut it. And back in these days, you took a grease pencil and a tape machine and you rock the tape back and forth to try to find your point. Put a grease pencil mark on it, go to the next place you wanted to edit and put a grease pencil mark. And you took a razor blade. There was an undo process to that too. By the way, you always put the tape you cut out around your neck, and then you play it the edit. And if it didn't sound right, you'd peel the splicing tape back off and you put this piece of recording tape back in and splice it back oh, in wow. and find the find the right spot. I actually started wanting to have my own studio and um it's probably about sixty eight or sixty nine. But I had to do some I had to do some time with Uncle Sam. And uh so when I got back I decided I was going to build a studio. And so Unlike today, uh, I started looking around for consoles. Well, the more I dug into it, the more I found out that there were no stock standard consoles out there. They were all at that time custom built. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't you didn't go to a music store and say, "I want that mixer." Yeah. So I couldn't afford a fifty thousand dollar console or even higher. You know, I bought some Altec Lansing literature and started reading and studying how the consoles worked and how the what the signal path was and what have you and i went to uh lafayette radio i doubt if you're you're probably too young to remember lafayette radio it was a place here in town i bought eight uh they were actually little pre-amplifiers but it was a circuit board you built yourself as in a kit so i bought eight of those and you could set them to where you had uh a phono level come in or a line level or a microphone level and so i set them up for microphones and i put these together in this homemade console and somehow made it work uh, i just got lucky 
I mean, I li- literally. Uh, and so uh, I had uh, I had a couple of two-track machines. Uh, st- they were stereo machines, and so I would record the first pass onto machine A, for example. Then uh, if we wanted to do overdubs, you'd take that tape off of machine A and put it on machine B. You'd feed that back into machine A along with whatever else you're going to mix in with it. And so that's how you did overdubs. Did you finally open up a studio, or was it more of a studio for yourself at that time? No, it, that was a studio that I had opened up, uh, and uh, I was open for business, but uh, there was another studio across town that was, uh, <laughs> it had a uh, custom console, it had uh, a one-inch eight-track machine, uh, I mean, there was no, comp- I, I, no way I could compete with that. And so I didn't last very long, and neither did that place. And the next thing I know, there, there's a man coming to me and says, I, I want you to, I'm going to rent you my studio over here. And he made me a price that uh, I couldn't refuse because it was the building and the equipment, everything in there. All I had to do was turn the utilities on go to work most of the time back then if people wanted to record if if bands wanted to record they didn't know much about anybody in Huntsville as far as recording business so they you know typically went to Muscle Shoals or Nashville and so it was hard to get people to come in because they didn't know anything about you I said okay well you know what I can write music and I can figure out how to get out and sell so I started selling recording jingles and that's how I survived over the years I've, I bet I've recorded 250 to 300 jingles oh wow was it mostly for local use or just for all over the region all over local, the country? local use mostly there was there was one regional regional thing that we did but uh, we didn't know that's what we were doing at the time we recorded it <laughs> there was an ad, ad agency came in. They just wanted us to record this jingle. They gave us the lyrics, and I wrote the music to it and and uh, brought in a friend of mine, Buddy Causey, to sing the vocals, and things sounded really really good. Uh, and the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from Buddy, who had been out in Los Angeles, and he said, did you know that that jingle is out in Los Angeles? I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> Well, come to find out this ad agency, uh, I forget what they call it, they put together a package they could sell and they were selling it all over the country. But they didn't tell us that when we were recording it. We thought it was one local dealer. What was your favorite jingle that you recorded? <laughs> uh, Did you have a personal favorite? Uh, well, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's one personal favorite. Uh, now, this, this hasn't been all that long. It was the late 80s. Uh, I did a jingle for Crestwood Hospital. They had their 25th anniversary and they wanted to they wanted to jingle and it, i was working through an advertising agency and uh so i wrote it and did a demo for it and they they liked the demo say okay now let's get the real thing done who are you going to use vocally and i said well i'm going to use my friend buddy Causey. they said uh well the hospital would like a celebrity on it I said, well, I don't know any celebrities, you know. <laughs> uh, so uh, they said, well, 
if it wasn't if you don't use if you don't use Buddy Cosby, who would be a good singer to do it? I said, well, the closest thing I can hear in my head would be uh, Lee Greenwood. And so long, lo and behold, uh, they booked Lee Greenwood to sing this thing, and I cut the music here, and I traveled to Nashville and put Lee Greenwood on it, and and delivered it to uh, Crestwood Hospital. So that was my favorite. And you're talking about when you you walked into the control room, it was supposed to be Lee Greenwood and me and the engineer, uh, and that was supposed to be it. Well, in comes the advertising agency with all of their people, a guy with a camera, a video camera from the, the Channel 19, <laughs> and I can see, I was looking at Lee Greenwood's face, and I could see it building up. I said, oh, man, we're fixing to have a blow-up. <laughs> <laughs> And he pull, but he did politely say, "Put the camera away. Uh, when we're finished with this, we'll do an interview." So that worked out pretty good. But the first uh, first pass through the jingle, uh, it wasn't anything like what I wanted. I had sent him a, a demo so he could hear it and at least find out my phrase, the phrasing, the words, and what have you. And it was terrible. And my finger was shaking when I was reaching over for the talk back button, <laughs> thinking, this guy's going to eat my lunch when I tell him that it was bad. <laughs> but you know what? He calmed down, and we worked for over three hours until he got it exactly the way I wanted it. And he didn't fuss, didn't raise cane or anything. He was very nice. What was the name of the uh, the studio itself? The studio uh, was called the Acoustic Loop Sound Lab. Don't, oh, cool. Uh, don't ask me where I came up with that. <laughs> that's a cool name, though. That's that's better than a lot of the ones I've heard. <laughs> where, where were y'all at in town? <clears throat> it was on uh, Oster Drive um, in a haunted building, by the way. At one time, it was a warehouse, and we cut several jingles in there. And later on, moved to moved out of there, and I actually opened uh, my own place with a a real console and uh, an eight track machine. When did you get into doing acoustics? Did that come in with with doing the studio work? That, that came in with doing the studio work. Uh, I I did a lot of reading about acoustics. I did uh, I did a lot of uh, Talking to other engineers, uh, especially Ed Boutwell, the, the the studio where we recorded our little recording, I became friends with Ed, and I would go down and pick his brain constantly. Most of the acoustic stuff was by necessity, and most of it was trial and error. But I did start reading about a different kinds of acoustic materials. There are some expensive things you can do, and there's some cheap things you can do if you don't mind the way it looks. There are some. If you mind the way it looks, then you're going to have to go the expensive way. So, for people who aren't really familiar with the science behind it, what are acoustics? Uh, well, acoustics. Best way for me to explain it, which I'm not a professor or anything. Best way for me to explain it is is uh, if you go into a room that has a lot of uh, slick surfaces, especially slick surfaces facing each other, then you're going to have a lot of reverb in the room. The formula for that is the RT60. The RT60 is the amount of time it takes sound to decay by 60 decibels. When it reaches 60 decibels, you, you can't hear it. So the reverb time of a room is RT60. So each room, 
when you walk into a room, if the RT60 seems long, then it's a it's going to be a terrible recording space. So something like a big a big hall or a warehouse where you can hear a lot of a lot of echoing in the yeah, room, for yeah, lack of a better word. That's right. Our gymnasium's perfect right. example. Uh, so you know you you see people walking into a room and they they clap their hands. I'm not going to clap my hands because it'll drive you crazy. Uh, they clap their hands to see what the acoustics of the room are. Well, that. that what that really means is they're trying to see if the room is reverberant or not because acoustics is more than one frequency. It's more than one hand clap. So uh, uh, a small room, say a, a room that's uh, 15 by 12 with a 9-foot ceiling, uh, that's a small room for, for, for a control room. It's great for me, but, but uh, you know, the professional studios, they have huge control rooms. And there's a reason, because the small rooms have a more of a, a possibility of big, building up uh, low frequencies. And low frequencies in a, in a control room or in a studio will it'll muddy, muddy your sound terribly. And you don't realize it. You know, all you all you realize is, wow, it's just not very bright. The recording's not very bright. Why? That's because you have such a buildup of low frequencies in a room, and the tape machine hears that. You hear it. Your ear hears it as, uh, like I'm listening to uh, I'm listening to music with ear with foam plugs in my ear. It's right. kind of it's got a film over it. Well, that's that's the buildup of the low. Frequencies. What's your general theory on? You walk into a room the first time. What are you looking for first as far as trying to determine how to treat it acoustically? First thing I like to look at is, is the, uh, the dimensions of the, of the room. There are some dimension parameters for a control room, for example. There are certain ratios you need to follow so that you every, every room is going to have standing waves in it. Uh, what is a standing wave for stand, people who are Standing wave is where sound travels roughly, what, I think 1,130 feet per second. Yeah. And so if a sound hits the wall on one side of the room, it's going to bounce back toward the opposite wall. And if you take that dimension and divide it 1,130 feet per second, it's going to tell you the standing wave. The standing wave is the, let's call it the resonant frequency of, the, of that, that room dimension. Now, there are three room dimensions. There's left to right front to back and floor to ceiling and what you don't want in a control room is you don't want standing wave from left to right to be the same frequency from front to back or from ceiling to floor to ceiling so something like a perfectly squared room wouldn't be oh, ideal it would be terrible yeah so recently there's there's been a lot of build up in town of, of new music venues new performance spaces that kind of thing um and something i've noticed is that people tend to forget or can't afford or don't want to mess with treating the space acoustically. So if you've got a space that's all concrete and metal, it's not going to sound very good. What are some, some good, decently cheap ways and easy ways for people who aren't really experts on acoustics? What are some good ways to treat rooms like that? Uh, I got a book that every musician ought to own because it's uh, gives, it gives you some practical Cheap Ways to Build Acoustics for Studios. The name of the book is How to Build a Small Budget Recording Studio from Scratch. I would say typically you can order these two-inch thick panels off the internet that are, it's a high-density installation that absorb all frequencies, 
fairly evenly, but they're expensive. You can go to a uh, a local insulation contractor or wholesale place and buy two-inch thick Owens Corning. It's uh, type 703. That's three-pound density. It's high density, and it's the same stuff that these expensive panels are made out of. And they're the thing. The panels are about around a dollar a square foot. They're just not as pretty. They're 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 not pretty at all because yeah. <laughs> it's just raw insulation. So now you got to come up with something burlap or or some kind of a cloth to put over it. But it doesn't need to be a sheen cloth. It's got to be porous so that the sound can get through the cloth into the insulation. One of the things that I highly recommend when people are putting panels on the wall, they're they're wanting to absorb as much sound as they can, right? Yeah. Well, okay, a a two-foot by four-foot panel will only absorb so much sound if you stick it on the wall. Why not stand it off the wall two inches so that the sound will go through and bounce back off the wall and catch the backside of this panel? Interesting. So you double double your space or double your absorption on certain frequencies. Uh, But anyway, uh, you can build your own panels like that. Uh, There's some tricks like uh, you want to sit at your console and have somebody take a mirror. you got your speakers on the the stands there. You want to take somebody, have somebody take a mirror and start, hold it on the wall over here. When you're sitting at the console and you're watching that mirror, and when you see in that mirror, you see that speaker right there, you want to put a panel right there because that's the first reflection. And then they do the same thing for the other speaker. Little tricks like that you wouldn't think about. You know, we think you wouldn't think, uh, okay, I'm going to put a panel right here in the middle wall because I like the way it looks. Oh, well, no, why don't you put a panel on the wall where it sees the fir- your, that mirror sees the first reflection? Now you've really done something. First reflection mean, meaning sound comes out of that speaker, and then it takes a little time, not much, but a little time to travel over and hit that wall. That's the first reflection. Then you want to look at, uh, okay, uh, the, the, do the math of the speed of sound versus the dimension of the room. You want to find uh, what what the standing waves are, and you want to concentrate on building something or, or placing something that will absorb the most amount of those standing waves. So something like a bass trap for low end. Bass or, trap. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Uh, sound builds up in the corners. Very. Uh, you you could uh, you could be playing a piece of music on those monitors there, and if you stick your head in the corner back here, you'll just hear a. Oops. You'll hear a bass buildup. Right. Well, that's where it gathers. That's one of the places it gathers. Yeah. And so you put traps in the corners. Uh, traps meaning uh, you can take, a, you can buy preformed base traps that are just foam in a in a triangular shape, or you can actually take some Owens Corning panels and put them in a frame and put them uh, at an angle in the corner, and it'll suck up that base. Every time you suck up some more bass, you're going to find that your room and your speakers are sound a little tighter. Then uh, if you're sitting uh, at a place like I'm sitting right now, if you are playing music and I sit back here against the wall, I hear more bass than you'll hear sitting at the console. Right. So you want to kind of try to trap the bass on the rear wall, things like that. By the same token, you don't want to put too much absorption in a room. Because it's if you do that, it sucks all the life out of your recordings. I said one more question for you. Your nickname, Toot. Where does that come from? <laughs> well, I've been I've been accused of flatulence. <laughs> uh, in the eighties, people were tooting cocaine, so I, everybody thought I was a drug dealer. 
Uh, in high school, I played uh, first the trumpet and then the tuba. So everybody thought that's where it came from. But the honest truth is, when I was born, the doctor came out of the delivery room and told my dad, it's a boy and he's not big as a toot. And that is exactly where it came from. <laughs> You'd never so guess you never guessed that literally born years. into that nickname. <laughs> I was from, from day one. <laughs> Well, too, thanks for joining us, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And I, th- I think uh, I think there's a lot of value that people can get out of listening to people who have seen all the changes that have come through the last 50 or 60 years or so. Yeah. And I appreciate you taking the time to come talk with us. Thank you for inviting me. The name of the book that Toot mentions earlier in the interview is How to Build a Small Budget Recording Studio from Scratch. And you can still find new editions of this book online. Thanks for joining us. This has been a production of Spice Radio Huntsville, a nonprofit based in Huntsville, Alabama. You can donate to Spice Radio by going to spiceradiohuntsville.com and clicking donate. If you have a line on great music, events, or art in the Tennessee Valley, tell us about it at spiceradiohuntsville at gmail.com. Join us on Facebook to see live performances and interviews from our studio. And remember, you can stream the best local original music 24-7 on our website, spiceradiohuntsville.com.